How's it going? We're recording this late May, almost June. Yeah, in uh, in 2021, and uh, or oh, is that the year? That is the year. I think <laughs> I do kind of lose track. This. You just said you did some sort of a outreach with kids and art yesterday. That sounded pretty cool. Paleo art. Actually, families uh, joined me. I, I, I drew prehistoric salmon. I drew giant spike tooth salmon, and we've talked really? about spike tooth salmon. I drew this. Because the University of Oregon, the Museum of Natural and Cultural History there, uh, they have the best specimens in the world there. They've got the holotype there, which is the first one ever discovered. They've got and some so other the ones. And so the spike tooth is called, what, Oncorhynchus, what, big mouthy, big toothy? Spikus. It is Oncorhynchus rastrosus. Rastrosus. And what does rastrosus mean? Rastrosus means, as refers to the gill rakers, but oh. actually one of the things they learned last night, so it was the first time they discovered it, they thought they were sabers, right? And then they because discovered... Because they, they thought they were pointing down, but... Right. Right. But then there were some that were in private collections, and then recently they found others that went into a public collection showing... This, they're spikes. They go sideways. Right. But when they first found it, they named it Smilodon ichthys, oh. and they put it in a new genus, and they compared it to a saber tooth. Right. Well, now right. I learned that that name is in brackets. So it is actually officially Oncorhynchus in brackets Smilodon ichthys rastrosus. But those are the brackets, the parentheses of shame. <laughs> so that's what okay. that's what uh but yeah Davis... i think uh our, our guest uh jerry smith when we talked to him a few weeks yeah, back yeah, yeah yeah he talked about that but yeah i thought that's the uh the brackets of shame so yeah the name is no longer valid the brackets of misnaming the brackets of shame by misnaming something right that almost rhymes yeah man it'd be a song <laughs> well anyways i drew with like a hundred kids everybody tuned in we had a scientist on ed was uh ed uh, Davis from uh, from the University of Oregon was there, and it was really cool to have a science scientist correcting me and adding to the dialogue and back and forth. We went. Is that viewable online? Can we see that? Yeah, actually, they're uh, they taped it, and it'll be oh, online. Great. So yeah. great. So we'll have the link to that mm-hmm. in, yeah, in this episode. Yeah, we can have that. Yep. Fantastic. Well, yeah. good on you for uh, teaching kids art and paleo art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We uh, kids and adults, kids <laughs> of all ages. Which, by the way, uh, I'm pretty sure we're going to have a art page on our website where listeners can submit their artwork, and we'll probably have contests and who knows yearly annual contests. But it would be great to share art from all ages, you know, professional, amateur, everything. All paleo art is awesome. So. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, we're, look, look out for that soon on PaleoNerds.com. We're finding out that there's actually a lot of kids listening to the show, which is very cool. Yeah, it is and, cool. And all the kids at heart. That's right. And uh, I occasionally bleep out when you swear. I'm sorry I did <laughs> Well, it's bleeped. Yeah, bleep. <laughs> What's going on today, man? So today, um, we are back at my comfort museum, which is the La Brea Tar Pits. And we are talking about dogs today, man. Dogs. Everybody's, you know, man's best friend. That's right. Well, not just dogs, but uh, fossil mammalian carnivores, because our guest is an expert on just that. On the carnivora. Carnivora. How do you say it? Carnivora, I think, actually is the uh, carnivora. You could say carnivora, but uh, I think uh, she's going to say carnivora. All right. 
Myrene Balisi, and she is uh, she's a postdoctoral research fellow. She's actually doing some exciting stuff with all those poor, poor creatures that have gotten stuck in the tar seeps below yeah. these 40,000 years. Yeah. And they well, continue to wait. do so to this day. Yeah. Poor cats and dogs and birds and skunks and all the, all the uh, mammals that live, badgers and possums, all mammals that live around Los Angeles today. Those trash pandas known as raccoons. That's They're right. in there, too. I don't know if there's any raccoons, really, at, oh, in the yeah. brain. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, recent ones, like from the last 20 years? You know, I thought you were doing your homework on our guest. You know, she's been working on raccoons in the past. and No, I'm talking you know? about raccoons from today, from this yeah. time period. What do you, L.A. is full of raccoons and, and, and coyotes. Man, it's, it's full of them. Wow. Okay. Well, we'll, listen, we'll ask her about the, uh, current, the current victims of La Brea. All right. Well, uh, shall we call her up? Sure. Let's do it. Hey, David Strassman, meet Myrene Balisi, postdoctoral research fellow at the La Brea Tar Pits and Museum and University of California, Merced. Myrene, thank you so much for, for joining us. I've uh, been following your work, and uh, I, it's a real honor to have you here. And meet Dave. Hey, hi, Myrene. So nice to meet you. You know, the La Brea Tar Pits is my comfort museum. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. And it's really great to meet you both. Uh, yeah, um, my Zoom background right now. So I am, I wish I were at the Tar Pits at the moment. Instead, I am at home because we still do have these um, COVID restrictions. But I do have on my Zoom background um, our direwolf wall, so, which may be a familiar sight to some of you and certainly to David, I would expect. So yes, yeah. I've seen that a million times, wondering how many skulls are there, something like 70 or 80 or something like that? No. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> There are a few hundred, right? 400 or something? Exactly. On this wall what? alone, really? there are 400, yeah. Of the yes. 4,000 you have? Something like of that? Of the 4,000 and counting wow. that we have. And what is direwolf? That's Canis dyrus? Dyrus? Um, that's a fantastic question because it was Canis dyrus, but oh. actually there was um, work that came out very recently, oh, no. just earlier this year, um, that puts into so this work is based on ancient DNA and um yeah so it seems that um it's no longer Canis rather ah. it's Anocyon dyrus so it's A E N O C Y O N is the new genus name that has been proposed by this paper has wow. that been accepted by all the direwolf community um I'm fine with it okay. <laughs> I think it <laughs> I think it makes sense and um yeah, from the from the you know uh, from the genetic genomic relationships aspect, and um, in terms of behavior, I mean, I don't think it really changes our idea of um, how direwolves used to behave um, or how they used to hunt. You know, they still look like wolves um, and presumably hunted like the gray wolves that we have today. Yeah, but they existed before humans ever named them. So our, this our is na true. naming is for us, not for them. We're going to get into your background in a second, but staying on the dire wolf, what is the most recent and, and earliest, not earliest, but the latest that a dire wolf lived in, in Southern California that walked around uh, La Brea area? What's the latest? 11,000 years ago? Yeah, about 11,000 years ago. So there's a lot of um, radiocarbon dating that's being done recently by a team at the La Brea Tar Pits. Um, and that was around the same time that we, you know, that all the other all um, the large, car 
Yes. Exactly. All the megafauna, including saber-toothed cats also. And yeah. there's always, you know, curiously, that's when humans really show up. But that's another... Another debate, but actually, well, we'll, no, we'll get into that. We'll later. get into that. But Dave, you have a very important question. Very important question, and uh, I don't know if anybody's ever asked you this, Myrene. Are you a paleo nerd? <laughs> I am a paleo nerd. I would hope so, considering you all invited me here. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we're usually spot on. We can spot uh, one of our uh, our fellow paleo nerds, and and you have an unusual background and uh how did the paleo nerddom start up you you were born in the philippines and came to the us at age 13 and i watched the fossil friday show with you and you talked about oh, national geographic and uh yeah. your grandfather wait, wait you were stuff. cleaning bones you were cleaning la brea bones in berkeley not knowing well let's let's right? get there i want to uh, let's let's back up okay before we get to berkeley tell us a little bit about your background if you don't mind of course, yeah. Um, so, yes, Ray, you're correct. I was born in the Philippines. And thank you so much for watching that Fossil yeah, Friday. Yeah, great show. Where my parents are from. So I personally am from Manila, which is the capital mm -hmm. of the Philippines. Um, it's in about the central part of the North Island, um, the big island that we have. And my family's from the northern part of the Philippines, though. And um, it's called Cagayan. Mm -hmm. And around there, there is this cave that's called Kalau Cave. So it's a it's actually a series of these beautiful limestone caves, and some of them um, have early you know ancestral human fossils, and of course the um, the fauna, the animals that were associated with them. But growing up, even having visited the caves as a child mm -hmm. um, with my parents, I did not know that background, and I did not know about the international significance of these things, and. Um, you know, the Philippines is a very biodiverse, yes, um, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a biodiversity hotspot. It's very lush. Um, you know, people go there and talk about waterfalls and tropical forests, but I personally grew up in, um, the capital. Uh, so it was a very urban environment that I grew up in and it's only now as an adult, now we have Google maps that enables, <laughs> you know, us to zoom out from wherever we grew up and realize, oh, there was tropical That's forest right was. there. Yeah. So my grandpa uh, was part of the, um, my, my entire family started moving over to the United States back in the 1970s. And my grandpa um, would send home to the Philippines, you know, National Geographic magazines. And um, whenever he went back to the Philippines, also he would bring boxes of these magazines. And so um, wow. National, yeah, National Geographic was, you know, it it was just incredible. It was my first glimpse of, you know, natural history, uh, biodiversity, paleontology, archaeology, and also photography. Um, that was... Uh, Maureen, that I, that's, uh, just as we're talking now, I'm realizing that was kind of my, one of my first, I got dinosaur books, but my grandfather had an entire basement full of National Geographics. And I wow. would go, they would lock me in the basement sometimes when I was a bad boy. It's the gateway drug to <laughs> all things I started out. I, I started out and I, I, some of those images just seared into my brain. and So that would kind of set the fire for you and you eventually yeah. moved to the United States and you went to college mm -hmm. and you ended up mm -hmm. going to Berkeley mm -hmm. where there were Indeed. some bones in a certain tower. How did those bones get Indeed. there in that tower? Um, so Berkeley has a, a museum of paleontology so as an undergrad there, um, I had the opportunity to take this class um, on comparative vertebrate morphology. So um, 
for that class, it was taught by Tony Barnowski, um, a vertebrate paleontologist. Mm -hmm. And um, for a class project, he had us go to the bell tower. Um, so the official name for this bell tower is uh, the Campanile or Sather Tower. The what? And, um, what? The Campanile. <laughs> is that is that Italian or or Spanish? Um, I think it's it is meant to be Italian. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, yeah, generally the bell tower um, or Sather Tower and. Um, the bells are at the top. So if you were, you know, there are tours, right? Campus tours, and if, if you want to take the bell tower tour, then you would take an elevator um, up to the uh, bells at the top. But little do most people know that the elevator takes you past all these floors with bones in them. <laughs> so as far as I know, most, if not all of the bones are Tarpits bones. There was no Tarpits museum yet, so the Tarpits Museum opened in late 60s, early 70s. So a lot of the excavations down here were being led by paleontologists from elsewhere, including Berkeley. I so, would think there'd be a lot of sharing of specimens all over the world or all over America. Yeah, yeah. I think sharing also does happen. And so um, a lot of the fossils that Berkeley paleontologists excavated ended up coming back with them to the, the University of California Museum of Paleontology. And at that same time, that clock tower was in the process of being built. Because of that, the clock tower was one of the, or the bell tower was one of the, you know, places on campus that had room for all of these fossils. And so the, these fossils went in there. So you ended up working on those bones, scrubbing those bones? What? What were they just were there lots of dire wolf skulls and mammoths? Or were and they stuff were they in, in a matrix or what? Was it just they, a... Yeah, so actually they were not in Matrix. Um and I did scrub bones, but not not these ones. These were other bones that I ended up scrubbing. Okay. Um <laughs> so um what I ended up doing with the um with the tarpets material um in the in the clock bell tower at uh, Berkeley was um well our class project involved uh, studying locomotion. Um, based on bones. And so we did this um, shape analysis of some ankle bones, if I remember correctly. And, you know, this was a class project. It wasn't really publishable, um, but, well, at least we didn't work on publishing it. It may have been. What was the first fossil you touched or handled that, you know, was an aha moment? Um, oh, man. We definitely handled dire wolf. We definitely handled saber-toothed cat as well. Um, so that is as much as I remember um, from back then. But it wasn't even the skulls, you know, I think that people are very, um, very aha inspired by skulls. Um, but these were like ankle bones and other other uh -huh. foot bones. But yeah, just knowing that this used to belong to an animal that is now extinct. Um, and in the case of the saber tooth, an animal that that we don't really have um, uh, an exact analog for right, in modern right. day. Um, yeah, I think that was but somewhere that was somewhere in that tower, something clicked with you and your path was set, but you were also a, a comparative literature major as well. But did you do? What? Yeah, she, <laughs> Japanese. Oh, that's right, Japanese and Russian. Russian. Yeah, we said we were reading that in your resume. But something really set the fire with you in paleontology. So you ended up getting a science degree or a both science and literature. At I got Berkeley. both. Oh. Yeah, so um, I was very much interested in a whole lot of things, and um, I had great professors in both departments. But I ended up going to grad school in biology under the 
impression that it would be easier to find employment <laughs> as a biologist. A comparative literature major? <laughs> yes, uh, yes. I see. Um, <laughs> Myreen, what you're saying, if I'm following what you, the voice within you really was in science, and you were curious about the natural world? Yeah, I think that was part of it, that... Um, that science gave me questions that I realized needed exploring. And mm. and sure, not necessarily exploring by me, but generally there were still questions out there. And um, certainly there are also questions in literature, um, but I felt more equipped to pursue, or, or I felt like I could carve a better niche for myself in science. So somewhere in there, pardon the pun, the dog thing bit you. Right. There's a little segue there, but well, uh, well, wait. Is it dogs or is it just basic fossil mammalian carnivores? Well, carnivora, but uh, you're kind of a dog person. But yeah, explain carnivora and dogs to us, if you would, please. Yeah, of course. Um, but before that, I I wanted to make another um, allusion, which is I also like saying that you know just as just as animals got stuck in the tar pits, I got stuck <laughs> yeah. as well. <laughs> well, you know, I think you get near those the tar pits. Uh, they people do get literally stuck in it mentally. You know, it's such a fascinating thing. So I think that's the case for a lot of other people as well. Um, I think that a lot of people want to come, um, you know, study tar pits fossils. At that time, um, in my math for my master's degree, um, I thought about studying. Um, large carnivores at the tar pits so which one though but which one i, mean, I know large carnivores encompasses yeah. everything the short-faced bear the smilodon yeah all of them <laughs> all of them there wasn't anyone in particular that not uh, any yeah not anyone in particular which actually was a may have been a bit problematic for a master's thesis because it's a lot of work <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a lot of work for a single person to do what were you doing in that paper you were looking at all the large carnivores and seeing if being carnivorous was a hindrance through time? Yeah, so I was looking at the large carnivores, um, including the dire wolf and the saber-toothed cat, American lion, short-faced right. bear. And I was also looking at some of the smaller ones, like bobcat, mountain lion, for example. Um, and my question was, um, well, okay, first of all, I was intrigued by how many of them there were yeah. and how few of them there are now in uh, modern ecosystems here, in, at least here in North America. My main question is why, um, and also how did yeah how did those large carnivores coexist without just automatically excluding well, each I other? Can I offer a real simple simple solution? I'm a non scientist with such large megafauna. That's a lot of meat to eat. That is. <laughs> Does, doesn't that is it make sense? Of, yeah. You'd have a diversity of carnivores and filling every niche. Yeah, I think I think that's a big part of it. Yes. Um, so there were. There were a lot of large carnivores, yes, but there were also um, a lot of large herbivores. And, you know, a lot of coming things at on the it menu. From... Yes, many things on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, so as a master's student, um, yeah, I was curious about, well, what do we know about their diets and how can we differentiate these diets from each other? And, um, you know, do they overlap um, in the things that they ate? God, I've got a million questions here. So... The bones at La Brea are, are pretty much jumbled. There's very few articulated s skeletons because the tar is, is a malleable uh, sediment. It's always mm -hmm. moving. And the way you can infer diet is through, obviously, the anatomical structures such as teeth mm -hmm. uh, and claws. 
But are there coprolites? Or, I mean, how would you know that a, a Smilodon, a saber-toothed cat, primarily ate bison or camel or woolly mammoth? And wait, Ray's, Ray is raising his hand. Isotopes? <laughs> Isotopes? Whoa, how oh, did you know histology? that? Histology? <laughs> you mean bone histology? <laughs> no, isotopes and histology, right? What's the yeah, difference? Yes. Yes, so both of those. So, um, yeah, both the of win. those. <laughs> yeah, so so those are certainly two of the tools that we could use um, to infer diet. Um, so going back to David's question about coprolites, um, to my knowledge, there we have not found coprolites of the large carnivores at the tar pits. We have found coprolites of the little guys. So, uh, um, recently, the, the um, they yeah. just found recently the uh, the rat poo or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, rodent rodent poo. And they thought it was contemporary. They, and they found it was like 30,000 years old, something like that. For the listening exactly. audience, a coprolite is fossilized poop. Just thought I'd throw that in. Yes, thank you, Ray. <laughs> fossilized poop. So so at the tar pits, we have found just this uh, fossilized wood rat poop. And it's, it's really cool. It has some, you know, plant material in it as well um, that our paleobotany curator, Regan Dunn, who was on the show earlier. Oh, Regan, um, that's right. Yeah, so I know that she's um, interested in um, continuing that work, I think. Anyway, so... Coprolites would be a surefire way for us to, you know, say, oh, this was in that, this bone was in that animal's poop. It, this animal must have eaten that one, <laughs> you know. Um, but, but, but wait, uh, how do you know what poop came from what animal? That's the other thing. <laughs> I mean, you know, herbivore and carnivore uh, coprolites are, are different, obviously. But mm -hmm. how do you know that? Well, that's canid, that's felae. How do you say fila? Felid. Feline, cat or dog, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a shape and a size that are hit, right? But... <laughs> yes, okay. there is There is a shape and a size. And, you know, oh, does it happen in, like, a series of pellets? Or, right. like, is, the, is there a terminal pellet? Um, and what is its shape? <laughs> so how, yeah, how are the carnivores, how do we know what they ate? Okay, so um, Ray brought up isotopes. So this is basically... Um, uh, this is a chemical analysis, right? A, a biogeochemical analysis specifically. So isotopes rely on the premise of you are what you eat. And basically this means that, um, you know, if I eat a lot of, for example, for lunch, I just had like fish ceviche, right? So, so fish are going to have a different geochemical or chemical signal um, than, for example, um, if I had eaten like, a salad for lunch that was mostly um, leaves, for example. And, and all of that, all of those chemicals in the stuff that I eat get deposited in every tissue of my body. May that be in my hair or in my teeth or in my bones. So tr taking that to the fossil record, it is possible for us to, to take a bone or even um, a tooth from an animal. Um, so for example, from a dire wolf uh, and say, oh, okay, this you know, let's run, um, let's sample um, carbon and nitrogen uh, from this animal's bones uh, specifically. And, um, oh, it has this signature, you know, this is the parts per mil value of this animal um, in terms of its carbon content and its nitrogen content. And that value matches up with this, you know, this value of whatever, um, horse or bison. Oh, it must have eaten 
therefore horse or bison. Oh, you could get down to specific animals. It depends. So I thought it'd just be oh well, it's a meat eater or a herbivore, but you could actually say short-faced bears ate camels or bison. If you know already the players in your community, uh-huh. if your herbivores, for example, do not overlap in their isotopic composition, uh-huh. um, oh. then you might be able to trace Got that. It. But if all the herbivores ate grass, then right. you know that might not be um, as possible. Would you be able to parse out that maybe um, saber-toothed cats being more of an ambush predator are going to wait for the bigger guys, and maybe there's more mammoth isotopes in them they could take them down but a dire wolf is going to take down buffalo well i guess they're both eating grass though but uh, can okay, you can I, you parse I, that I, let me let me let me do yeah my, i got my question then, I, then i'm going to throw a big wrench All in right, this okay, whole you discussion will. So, uh, yeah as you often do <laughs> um yeah so that's a great question and um okay there are some ideas these days um we need to do more ground truthing of um, what different isotopes from different sources mean. As far as I'm aware at the moment, we get slightly different pictures from when we sample for isotopes from bone collagen, for example, um, versus isotopes from tooth enamel. Yeah, there needs to be more work done just to figure out like, oh, okay, so the bone, bone isotopes um, say that, you know, for example, saber-toothed cat and dire wolf were overlapping in their diet, but maybe the enamel isotopes don't say that. So what could be the issue there? And is it that, you know, is it because uh, maybe saber-toothed cats were like hunting in a different environment or not? So there there are definitely ideas these days saying, oh, they they differ in these particular isotopes. So they must, you know, saber-toothed must have been on the plains and our wolf must have been in the forest um, but then other isotopes don't say that as much so we need to figure out right. so it's tantalizing it's possible we're not there yet i guess is what you're saying here comes that exactly. wrench here comes the here wrench comes that wrench okay what percentage of animals in the la brea collection are just bones that animals died and you know were buried through sediment and what percentage were stuck in the tar and died through that violence of being alive and being preyed upon and then being preyed upon and and the cat comes on the mammoth and the bird goes on the cat and the dire wolf goes on all of them. What percentage are natural death collections of bones and what percentage are stuck in the pits? So that is a very traumatic scenario that you have just painted, Dave. So uh, the short answer is that we're not sure. We are developing a more um, nuanced picture now of how animals became trapped. Okay, well, here's my wrench, though. My wrench is that you have a place in Southern California where all these animals are entombed in tar. So that is not a natural it's not a natural collection of the Southern California basin. That is a place where it had high mortality, high preservation, and possibly most of those animals died because they got stuck. Mm -hmm. All the data that comes from La Brea is specialized and highly focused and might not represent the natural environment 20 miles away. Absolutely. Okay, sorry. So the wrench part of that was that... <laughs> <laughs> was that was that when yeah the wrench part of it is that 
When this is such a specialized place and a specialized collection and maybe not representational of the Pleistocene, mm -hmm. 20 miles away or 100 miles away, Bakersfield or San Diego. Pleistocene, thank you. Thank you. I always do that. Pleistocene. Pleistocene. <laughs> Try to keep you honest, Dave. <laughs> I think... The wrench. Okay, go yeah, ahead with Ray, your wrench. No, well... Where are you you're going? You're not. Dave? You're not getting real. You're not. You're getting right. Twisted data. It's twisted data. Well, hence we and, have. And, so and how many... do we know that all the smilodons don't normally eat mammoth? But you go and you check out their histology. Oh, they've been eating mammoth. But no, that was because there was a mammoth stuck, and they saw that opportunity. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm hmm. Okay. Yeah. So um, there are multiple. Well, at least I have multiple answers to your question, or multiple angles at which to approach it. Great. So um, the one of the so first um, Rancho La Brea or the La Brea Tar Pits is not the only asphaltic locality um, that we have in uh, California from the Pleistocene. So we have a couple others. Um, there are, for example, the McKittrick. Um, asphalt seeps um, over by Button Willow um, in Kern County, um, and uh, there's also Maricopa um, around, uh, you know, also in that general region. And so uh, those two other sites are understudied at the moment. Are those asphaltic um, sites, though? They are also asphaltic. Well, sites. I'm talking about non-asphaltic, <laughs> where people, where where animals don't get stuck. For example, there's a new one that they found up by Chico. Right, right. So is that also a place to see? Uh, could be Miocene. It could I be think much it's older. the Miocene. Yeah. Okay. So a different okay. depositional scenario. Yeah. So I think I actually have, um, if it's the Merton formation up there, um, then I have studied fossils from there as well. Um, and would be happy to chat about that after, you know, maybe later on. <laughs> but, um, so going back to your original question, which is, um, you know, okay, so you had asked how representative could this be of, of a Pleistocene ecosystem, considering that it's asphaltic and, um, you know, animals were getting stuck and, you know, maybe maybe they wouldn't have gotten preserved if they had not gotten stuck. Okay, so there is this idea, uh, maybe, maybe the large carnivores at the tar pits got stuck because uh, maybe they were, you know, somehow weakened. By something or um or you know they saw easy prey or maybe they were like um like i got a question yesterday for example oh were these like maybe naive animals who had gotten stuck um <laughs> naive <laughs> dumb. Yeah, naive. Just dumb the dumb ones got stuck all right that yeah, you, can't tell, you can't tell there's tar there because water floats above the tar you can't see that when you're going for a drink yeah sometimes um yeah also there's there's other stuff um, that we can get into there about you know water flowing on top or not so if it's, you know, maybe animals, maybe predators that were getting hurt, that, that were already injured, maybe they just saw easy prey and went after that easy prey, right? So that's one idea. However, um, I have done work on uh, the pathology collection that we have here at the Tar Pits. So this is an entire collection that is separate from uh, most of the other the specimens that we have. Um, and this is a collection of bones from mainly saber-toothed cats and dire wolves, also some other animals, but these bones have pathologies on them or um, lesions on the skeleton that most of which are traumatic or sustained from most likely from hunting or some other active behavior. A uh, hunting and, injury, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, the prevalence of these injuries is still pretty low. So it it's about, you know, only about um, 
3% of of animals had these, um, of the saber-toothed cats and dire wolves at least, had um, sustained injuries. But what percentage of herbivores have carnivore pathology? You know, teeth marks, bite marks, crushed bones. Yeah, I don't think we have very many. I haven't looked at them personally, but yeah, I don't recall um, be there being much direct evidence. So the cat jumping on the mammoth and the bird jumping on the cat and the rat jumping on the bird, that, that, that uh, deposition is a fallacy or very uncommon? It's possible. I know more about possibly the cat jumping on the mammoth, but then the like scavenging bird, um, you know, then jumping on the remains of the cat and the mammoth. Um, <laughs> I think that's possible, but uh, we need more work done on the, on the birds. The big popcorn ball of predators. So, <laughs> so it just keeps getting more and more and more, but but I'm, I'm going to take it back to dogs. You know, you've, I've looked through your, you have a really great, what? There's a really great website. You're, you have a really great website and, uh, I love that you have a Spotify dog playlist. I've even Thank contributed you. to your playlist. You, did you update that a little bit? I forgot. Oh, yeah, I haven't. I meant to. I'm sorry. I know. Oh, well, I, yeah, get on I that. did. Well, you but, know what? Let's yeah. let's. Uh, you can find a link to her Spotify yeah, playlist so, well, on this we'll, episode, and I, we'll update it before that. My read did dogs evolve in North America and um, and once upon a time North America was a dog paradise. There was great diversity of dogs, dogs beyond our imagination. Did they start out in North America or where where do dogs come from? Yes, dogs did start out in North America. They did. Um, <laughs> Wow. Yeah, and that's 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 one um, one quiz question that I like to uh, use it as an icebreaker in some of my talks. You know, just oh, where which continent do you think dogs came from? And people have seven options for the seven continents, and um, people typically answer with Africa or Asia. Yeah, which I think that's is what I would have said. Huh. Right, and I I think that's very interesting because it reflects our um, our modern ideas about where biodiversity is. Mm. Um, and, you know, South America, Africa, Asia, like, yes, we, we recognize those as current um, hotspots of biodiversity. But 40 million years ago, which is when the first dog fossils started appearing, or North America was a very different place. And it was, yeah, so the dogs back then, too, were also just different. They were smaller. They were more omnivorous. Um, so today we have wolves and coyotes and Foxes, like those are our three main types of right. dogs. But by dog, also, I, I feel like I need to clarify by dog. I, as a paleontologist, being Canid Day, so the entire right. dog family, um, not just domestic dogs, but also right. um, their their ancestors. So yeah, today our main dogs here in North America, apart from domestic dogs, um, are wolves and coyotes and foxes. But all of those are only distantly related to um, a lot of the uh, fossil dogs that we have from about 40 million years ago onwards. So who's the mother of all dogs, wolves, and foxes? <laughs> the mother. Well, I can talk about the, the ancestral species. There are three um, main so... groups. There were three big families, right? Yes, there were three. Um... Hesperocyonidae. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, Four, Forophaginae mm -hmm. and Caninae. How do you say that? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So three subfamilies of um, dog, including fossils. Um, so you got that right. Uh, the earliest species that we know of is Hesperocyon gregarius. So that's where the name Hesperocyoninae comes from because Hesperocyon, you know, was like the landmark species for this subfamily. So Hesperocyoninae appeared about, you know, it was the earliest subfamily uh, and it appeared from about 40 million years ago, went extinct about 15, 15 million years ago. And then Borophaginae was um, the subfamily that originated after that. So uh, Borophaginae and Hesperocyoninae overlapped a lot, actually. And uh, so Borophaginae arose pretty early on as well. Actually, all three subfamilies arose pretty early. Well, let's just back up a little bit. We have three families of uh, dogs. There was great diversity in North America. Three families were the Canidae, which our modern day dogs belong to, the uh, Hasperro, I'm gonna leave it to you. I'm garbling yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Canidae is the top of the tree, then there's the three underneath. Two underneath. Yeah. Hesperocyanidae, or Borophoret. Why don't they no, just call them like doggy, <laughs> little doggy, fox-like, and weasel-like? Why don't we? Well, actually, the Borophaginae are the bone-crushing dogs, known commonly. How about mm -hmm. the uh, the earliest group that you were talking about, the Hesperocyanidae? Is there mm -hmm. a common name for them? Not really. So um, they look like small dogs. <laughs> I mean, they're <laughs> there's a variety. There's a variety. So okay, I just wanna um, just wanna clarify for everyone. So okay. the dog family in general is called Canidae. So the day part, uh, the D A E, um, that signifies the family level. And then um, in the dog family, Canidae, there are three subfamilies. So most ancestral is Hesperocyon and Nay, and the Nay part of that signifies subfamily level. Ah. Nay is a N-A-E. First, we have Hesperocyon and A, and these animals, when they started out, they looked very much like raccoons or omnivores. Uh, they were relatively small to medium-sized. Slender and bodies. Yeah, yeah, a bit of a slender body, but then they started to evolve. Um, they started to develop these um, large-bodied members. Later on, uh, these large-bodied members included uh, the genus Anhydrocyon, uh, which had several species, especially in the um, in the John Day fossil beds of Oregon, mm -hmm. where um, Ray just was. I was down there a few weeks ago. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, yeah it's what an amazing site. Lovely That's one place. of my, my favorite places. Yeah, so um, so that's Hesperocyoninae. And then there's Borophaginae, mm -hmm. which overlapped a lot with Hesperocyoninae. Um, Borophaginae arose um, also around um, 40 million years or close to that, between 40 and 35, and uh, went extinct about uh, 2 million years ago. And Borophaginae, um, so boro just means, you know, something hard uh, or tough. Uh, so these are the, the tough-eating dogs or bone-cracking dogs. Um, and I understand you had um, you had someone earlier in this series. Um, Amy on, Atwater. Amy, yeah, Amy exactly. Atwater studied them oh, right, yeah, right. in San Diego. Yeah, yeah. So Amy Atwater um, spoke about bone crushing dogs, and these are these are those. However, Barophaginae, even though their name means like bone or you know or tough eating, that's not all they did. 
so like Hesperosaurine, they also originated as smaller bodied, um, relatively omnivorous forms. And actually, some of the species in this subfamily evolved into these um, even smaller and almost probably herbivorous. Yeah, I counted 14 species of the Borophaginus. Maybe you're thinking about Borophagus, and that oh. is the... <laughs> One genus. <laughs> yeah, so... Oh, um, I so... get so confused with genus <laughs> species. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's half of yeah. what we talk about in this show, trying to get Dave yeah. to understand that, but... <laughs> yeah, so I yeah. went to Wikipedia. This is great. You go to Wikipedia right. and you type in and you get these trees and each tree has a link and you can link and look at a photo and uh, or a photo. You can look at a drawing or the skeleton of any of these. And there are there are a multitude to dive into. Yes, absolutely. And um, I think that, you know, the genus Barophagus, those are definite. They were definitely large, definitely uh, bone cracking. Um, and I think they've, you know, well, these animals, we don't really have, we, we don't have them anymore, and we don't really have bone crackers anymore either. The closest we have are hyenas, um, but then we don't have those in North America anymore either. So the fact that there were animals like that, distantly related, because hyenas are Yeah, hyenas are actually more cats. Than, exactly, hyenas are. blowing yeah. I know, yeah, I first what? learned that, and I was just, Hyenas what? are more... <laughs> cat-like than no they're actually on the they're on the cat family tree dude i've sent you an image mm -hmm. that had that all charted <laughs> out see here a carnivora mamla i'm looking by the way ray has the most amazing tree it's a literal tree with these giant leaves and we have bear let's see dogs wolves bear dogs pandas oyster bear go down bears. the tree and see the split between the dogs and the cats they didn't get along yeah. early on they split yeah but actually yeah. that that brings me up to, back to so is Episcion a uh, bone-crushing dog? Episcion? Yeah, Episcion is a, also a bone-crushing dog. So that's it within that group. Enough. And they are, that was maybe technically the biggest, baddest dog of all time? Mm-hmm. Yep, How big? Yep. How big? Um, it, it was, it's big enough that I've seen reconstructions of Episcion right next to a Volkswagen Beetle. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was, you know... Not quite that size, but it, it was large enough. You mean black bear or grizzly bear size or what? Um, Probably not that big also, but still bigger than a lot of the dogs that we have today. Right. So think about uh, the biggest dogs that we have today, for example. But here's my question. Where do dogs and bear dogs diverge? And what, what is the difference? Because the bear dogs had great deal of diversity too. And many of them were tiny but many were huge amphicyon mm -hmm. yeah amphicyon was one of them yeah so where do they and what's the difference between these bone crushing dogs and where, where's that split what's the distinct thing between bear dogs and these bone crushing dogs or dogs in general so a lot of the evidence for um you know how to classify um for example cats versus dogs or dogs versus bear dogs um, a lot of the evidence for that is skeletal and has to do with structures of the skull, specifically of the inner ear. Hmm. Um, so I personally have not done that work, but people like um, Bob Hunt at Nebraska, for example, has done a lot of work on bear dogs. Meanwhile, uh, someone I've worked with closely at the Natural History, Natural History Museum of LA County here, Xiaoming Wang, uh, so he has done a lot of the work on dogs. Yeah, for questions about um, exactly how the um, ear 
um, part of the skull is structured and how that differs between wow, dogs that, and their dogs. Wow, is that subtle? Huh, wow. Doesn't does all Canadae ear structure have an extra piece of bone in the middle ear and that's what separates them from all other? Yeah, yeah. So that's part of it. But I am, what I'm not sure at the moment, what I'm not sure of is, is that a Canadae-specific thing or is that a Canadae-form-specific thing? Because uh, Canadae-forms include the bear dogs. Right. Well, yeah. as usual, our minds are reeling. There's, there's a lot of information here. Wow. But here's a real basic question, though. Uh, when do dogs and wolves split? I know it's not you know, an area of your specialty, but you must know people that Wait, know. Before we get to that, though, because that's going to be leading to what I want to ask is cats and dogs came from a common ancestor? Way back when. Uh, no. Way back way when. Back when. Yeah, way back yeah, when. All mammals. Yeah, all mammals at the end yeah. of the Cretaceous. We're all, yeah, we're all mammals. No, but, but... On, the, on the carnivora, carnivora tree, right. there's splitting that happens, and that's early right. on. Okay, so cats and dogs are kind of related. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, eventually at some point. Okay, and then your question, Ray. My question is farther up, way farther up the tree and off <laughs> down the, the dog branch, all right? The Canidae, the Canaanite branch, right? If I'm following mm -hmm. Marina correctly. When do we know, can we see in the fossil record where dogs and wolves split? And that, that's still the, the latest thinking is that dogs are basically domesticated wolves. Yes. So that's still what we know, that dogs are um, domesticated from wolves. Deme All right. um, and they're still, you know... I, at least uh, my impression of it, my understanding of it, is that there's still a lot of active research being done on this, um, ranging from, you know, morphometric work. So looking at the shape of some early, uh, some specimens, for example, um, found at archaeological sites. Um, there have been studies asking, oh, are these wolves or are these dogs, you know, domestic dogs? And those tend to be thousands of years old, tens of thousands of years old. And um, there, there, there are also studies, of course, of, you know, involving, um, yeah, involving genetic work, um, figuring out like, oh. Let, mm -hmm. Sorry, let me get this straight. So dogs and wolves come from a common ancestor or dogs come from wolves? Dogs? I mean, okay. I thought a paper came out just recently mm -hmm. saying that dogs do not descend from wolves, that they share a common ancestor. Yeah, so I mean, both kind of make sense in the <laughs> from the from the perspective that well, there probably isn't a single wolf lineage that gave rise to the modern domestic dog, right? And so, um, so it's it it's probably not that a single you know we probably cannot trace domestic dogs to a single wolf ancestor per se. There's also the the um, likelihood that this was this domestication process may have been happening, not just in one instance. Actually, you found a domestic dog in La Brea, right? There is a couple in the collection right. there. So it's, that's fascinating. Well, I was going to say, I think that the process of evolution, and many of our guests have talked about this too, there is branching, but then there's also kind of the branch is pretty tangled. And there's mm -hmm. that process of the dogs, uh, the domestic dogs splitting off from wolves, the common ancestor, there's a group and then maybe that group interbreeds and they come back in and evolution, I think we're beginning to see it's not so simple that there's some, and then yeah, there's, not a, then tree, there's a, it's a vine. It's a it's vine a, that sometimes winds and winds, then there's a split and then there's, it's, it's not mm -hmm. that simple. 
Yeah, exactly. It's it's you know it's like a, a tangled bank, right? Yeah. Or it's it's rather than uh, rather than a tree, it might be um, a really tangled bush, right? right. <laughs> so so yes, we do have a single uh, domestic dog fossil one. at the Tar Pits. Wow. Yeah, one at the moment. How old? Um, well. Uh, about 3,000 1973. years old. 1973. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it, it is a fossil. Um, it is thousands of years old. Uh, three, specifically. 3,000 years old. So that's pretty young. And um, we had, by we, I mean, so I personally did not find this uh, dog fossil. This dog How do you fossil know they're domesticated? Was... They didn't have a collar. <laughs> yeah, so... Um... I mean, a Native American lost their dog in the tar pit? <laughs> It's possible. I mean, you know, people get, I mean, we have squirrels like <laughs> getting trapped these days. So, so just some traits of it, uh, you know, look like domestic dog. Um, it's, uh, it looks pretty, um, okay. So at the tar pits, we also have foxes, gray fox in particular. And this clearly looks like a dog. It did not look like a fox. It also did not look like a coyote. And, um, yeah, so it there were wow. and it definitely was not the size of a dire wolf, not the size right. of a gray wolf, um, and it was not you know just a uh, wolf pup or anything. So just yeah, process of elimination, um, you wow. know, by people who came before me um, here at the carpets. Um, yeah, so um, yes, Ray. Did you give it a name? Oh man, did, somebody, did they call it? Because oh. I know you've named. <laughs> you know, there's Zed, uh, the big elephant, uh, the big Colombian mammoth that's out there. Yeah. Nobody named the dog. All right, I there's know, a, con we, a contest for when the museum reopens. Uh, You're right. We do. We have named other things at the museum. So, for example, we have a mountain lion skull that we've named Pebbles. Um, and, you know, I, yeah. But we have not named this domestic dog, probably because it, you know, it was excavated before we started naming things. Um, but I think that is a fantastic idea for... Um, Outreach. Yeah, for our yeah, for outreach for our museum, um, you know, reopening. Is it um, just especially. a skull or do you have more of that one domestic dog? It is there are some other post crania as well. These are, mm. you know, uh, non skull parts. Um but yeah, it's it is mostly just the skull. And it has it's a broken skull. Oh. Um you can actually see um so there's this uh cup of bone that is inside our skulls and also inside this dog's skull. Uh, this cup of bone is called the cribriform plate. It sits between your the olfactory lobe of your brain and the rest of your nose. So this dog has its skull broken in just the right place that you can see that it has a fully intact cribriform plate, which is incredible. What because... does that mean, though? Why? What? So? So um, I think it would be exciting to be able to study the cribriform plate of this dog because the, the shape of that plate um, and, and the size of it um, can be reflective of how well it's spelled. And this is a lot of this um, work on this particular bone has been done um, by my lab that I did my uh, graduate studies in at UCLA, um, specifically uh, by my colleague, uh, Deborah Bird. So yeah, uh, bird studied um, this bone in a lot of other um, mammalian carnivores and found relationships between the size and shape of the bone and also um, the ability to the olfactory uh, intensity. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The ability to smell. Wow, wow. So I think that would be super cool to be able to study in this particular dog fossil. 
How does that compare to to a other Dane, a Great Dane or a Direwolf? Well, actually, exactly. Before we leave the idea of uh, naming this uh, this this uh, tar pit pooch, um, how how big is it? Is it a big dog or is it a little dog? It's a smaller dog. I mean, oh. it's not it's not a Chihuahua. All right, so it's a small dog. All right, just yeah, curious. I, I, yeah, I'd say it's a uh, it. It's, it's a Jack Terrier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe a small to medium-sized dog, I would say. And it's an adult. Yes. So at the height right. of dog diversity in North America, how many species were there? Okay, so this uh, there were about 25 different species, and this was about 29 million years ago. And how many are left today? Um, in North America, there are about eight today. Oh, oh that's right. So dog, gray wolf, coyote... Uh, and a bunch of foxes. Foxes, right, right. I'm actually not even counting domestic dog in that. Yeah, well, that's that's human mistakes. <laughs> so, Myrene, does that include, so that's it's 29, 30-ish species way back there. Is that different genera? Um, um, yes, also different genera. So how many genera were there? That's, oh, man. So I'm talking um, to the scientists. Say... I'm throwing this at you. I know, yeah. Um, uh, I would say probably at least 10 genera, um, probably more than that, probably more like 15. But yeah, it's the number of species that stands out to me because um, genera are kind of... Um, General? Yeah. Well, they're, yes, they're exactly. variations on a theme, <laughs> I guess, though. Yeah, yeah. I, I look at them that way. And uh, today's, the how many genera are in North America? Okay, so there's Canis, and there's, uh, so Canis, uh, Lupus, and Latrans, those are the gray wolf and coyote. And then there's Eurocyon, which um, is the gray fox, oh. and also the, um, also the island, uh, yeah, the... Um, Channel Island. Exactly, Channel Island's fox, um, those are both Eurocyon. Um, and then we have Vulpes, that's the red fox. Well, Dave and I are talking about genus and species, genus being more general, species being more specific. But I look at general as like, you know, there's the Pacific salmon, you know, we've got six species and we found out that there's actually a few more uh, that are within that, within the genus. But in the Canis world today, there's six species in the genus Canis, dogs, wolves, coyotes, the golden wolf, and there's the Ethiopian wolf, and there's a, a jackal. Jackal. And those are all variations on basically, you know, and the domestic dog, you know, those are variations on what we commonly think of as dogs, which is, mm -hmm. there's a lot of diversity there. So mm -hmm. just, it's pretty amazing. Well, they're yeah. filling all kinds of ecological niches is what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And also um, these, they're filling um, these niches all around the globe, right? Like the... Um, the golden wolf, for example, like those are not in North America. Right. Um, it's only Cadenae that got to immigrate, um, migrate all around the world. Right. Well, it's wow. still kind of a dog's world, I guess, you know. <laughs> What's the coolest fossil that has blown you away in your lifetime as a paleontologist? Um, well, our It could be anywhere. It doesn't have to be at the La Brea Tarpets. Oh, okay. Um... I think I'm going to answer the Tarpits fossil anyway. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of really cool uh, fossils elsewhere. Um, we are lucky at the Tarpits to have a pathology collection, and I've mentioned it earlier in this chat. This was a pathological pelvis or hip bone from a saber-toothed cat. 
for almost a hundred years, um, what people thought about this, um, this fossil, thanks to, you know, the work by Moody and, and, um, Chris Shaw, Fred Heald and others, the impression that we had of this particular pathology was that, oh, this animal was hunting and it got hurt, um, because hunting is a very dangerous activity. Um, it got hurt and, um, you know, this injury did not heal properly and got infected. And that's why we have this really gnarly bone that is preserved in our collections today. But and and the drum roll. So what is it really? This is active work on my end. Um, so uh, people at the Tarpits and I have collaborated with orthopedic surgeons from Cedar sinai uh-huh. who have brought this, you know, Kind of new technology called computed tomography or CT, which you may have heard CT, of. CT, <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah, three-dimensional yeah, so, scanning. Can I guess good. what yeah. it is? What is it? What do you think, Dave? I'm guessing it's either a disease or a birth defect. Yeah, it actually is um, a birth defect. So um, this saber-toothed cat has this condition called... Clickety-hip, dis- clickety-hip. Yeah, hip dysplasia, which um, is pretty common in our uh, living, you know, domestic dogs and also and um, humans. domestic cats. My cousin, my cousin's humans. daughter had a clickety hip. Oh my goodness. She was in a cast where the yeah. legs are stationary. Wow. So you cat scanned the cat. Mm-hmm. That- yep. <laughs> yes, indeed. So the cat, the cat, but the cat came back. Wow. So as the, the cat very next day, the very next day. <laughs> cool. Here we go, Myrene. The tough question. Actually, it's a fun question. If you could go back to any period in time, any epic epoch, any favorite paleo period, when would it be and what would you want to see? Oh, man. Okay. Time travel. Um, What do you want to see? Time travel. I would love to see some bone cracking dogs. Ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, and I don't mean, yeah, I don't mean like hyenas, right? I mean, they're not dogs. But um, so I have done some work on the dogs from this one locality called, um, well, it's the Merton Formation in Central California. Uh, it's in this region that our collaborators found um, fossilized poops from a bone cracking dog. And through the power of math, I was able to. Um, you know, measure the, there was bone in these fossilized poops, Mm. which is incredible. And one of those bones, bone fragments really happened to be, it looked like part of a rib of a larger herbivore. Mm. So we were able to, um, you know, measure that bone fragment. And then I went into, you know, I went into the collections of the Natural History Museum here and measured a whole lot of ribs from those. And? um, and, and what yeah, is we, it? What do you think yeah. it was? Yeah, we, well, okay. We could not identify oh, the bone oh. to species, but right. uh, what we did find was that um, it was likely from an herbivore that was larger than right. the bone cracking dog in question or that, that whose poop it was, which is a cool result in itself because this, so this species of bone cracking dog is Barophagus parvus. Barophagus. Um, and it's it's like a medium-sized bone-cracking dog. It's large, um, you know, absolutely compared to other um, o- other dogs. So they hunt in groups or packs. Yes, that is part of what we thought. You would that, infer. Yeah, what we would infer because uh, for this dog to have been able to take down an herbivore larger than itself, unless so, it was scavenging. Bar- unless it was scavenging. If this barophagus was out chasing it down. In your mind's eye, what do you see it taken down? Come on, just conjecture now. Um, yeah, something 
larger than a deer, I would say. Something so, cool and prehistoric? Uh, uh, yeah, like a prehistoric, not not quite a moose-sized thing, but... <laughs> um, oh, are you thinking of um, something that we absolutely don't have today? Well, I mean, I okay. Know, baby, <laughs> of course. Yeah, you're back in time. There, Everything's extinct. Yeah, I I know. it's taken about. down a little baby mastodon. It's taken down... Um, yeah, like a, a, a little dino... Yeah, a gonfothier, a dinosaur, or something like that. Yeah, well, this is why I want to time travel, though, because that's something that I would be able to see if I were, if I I could time travel. (laughs) I'm I'm leading the witness. I'm trying to put creatures into your your time travel. Still, that's good. That would be great. A crunching, giant, bone killing, bone crushing. I can hear David's sound effects already. Yeah. Myrene, I'd like to think I see the world factually because I'm always reading up on not just, you know, paleontology, but biology, archaeology, history, astronomy, anything with an ology. So I'd like to think that my world is based in fact. So my question is, what's the best way to promote fact-based truths in science at the same time some social media and political news outlets promote the opposite, lies and misinformation? Yeah, uh, that is such a deep question. Um, so there is no simple answer, but give me a, yeah. something, some advice to a non-scientist. Right. I think actually, maybe counterintuitively, I think that getting people to understand facts involves getting them to understand the uncertainties behind the facts. So, okay, from a scientific perspective, you know, we know what we know based on. Uh, the methods that we have at that time based on the specimens that we have at that time, right? Um, but then it's always possible to collect new evidence. And, um, or, you know, in the case of this um, pathological hip um, from the saber tooth that I mentioned, um, you know, now we have new technology that we've been able to apply to this very old specimen. And so through that, we, we have a better understanding of well, how Well, you rewrote animal- its history. Based on new factual information from new technology. We have good ideas. You know, we we might have hypotheses that need testing. um, And then we get a conclusion from that study. But that doesn't mean that the book needs to be closed right then and there. Because some new evidence might come along or some new methods might come along. um, That would help us develop a better understanding of that particular problem. Um, so I think just getting the public to understand that um, maybe uh, I think in school we are like fed facts, but yeah, one of the things that um, I think we're fed facts without context. Yeah, rather than saying, "Oh, I guess that fact was wrong," um, it's more like, oh, "Okay, we just have new new methods, new evidence to bring to bear on that." You test the evidence. Exactly. You test, yeah. you test, test hypotheses. The Have, test mm-hmm. the hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Well, so I really enjoyed this. Uh, we we jump all over the place. We go where we go. It's, but thank you for, for joining us on our little joyride of uh, uh, carnivores today. And uh, it's kind of making me hungry, too. I, you know? And I love that word, bone-cracking. Bone-cracking <laughs> dog. Wow. Yeah, or bone-crushing. Bone-crushing, bone-cracking. Yeah, yeah. Bone crushing sounds more metal, so. Myrene, that was so awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, I know more about dogs uh, and, and the evolution of, of these canine critters. Glad to help. This was really fun. Thanks so much. Yeah, it was really wonderful. Uh, thank you so much. Really appreciate it.
and I will update my dog playlist oh, yeah. right after this. Yeah, remember. <laughs> All right, Thank see you, Ray. Ya. Bye. 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 Wow. Bear dogs, dogs, wolves, jackals, dogs. Carnivores. All in that tree there. So, yeah, carnivora, tar pits, things dying, <laughs> things eating stuff. And then I like the cat scan cat. Yeah, that's, the, you know what? That sounds like a song. Cat scans cat. But what I learned, my takeaway from this was that, you know, North America has got it going on. We are not only the place where horses and camels evolved. We are the homeland of dogs. Dogs came from here, man. Yeah, yeah. I went down a very strange rabbit hole on social media that claimed that horses had been here, that the Spanish didn't introduce them. And I well, started reading this whole thing. Well, horses evolved here, but then they were went extinct after they'd left over the land. No, no, this, this was a rabbit hole that said they never left, that the Native Americans had domesticated them. They had never got extinct here. And that it's wrong that the Spanish had reintroduced them back in Florida. And then and then there was a comment that said, dude, this is all poppycock. And then I went, oh, my God, I'm reading one of those posts that was all bull. Well, there has been. I have met people and credible people, and I've discussed this and uh, with them. It's, is there truth to this rumor? I think most paleontologists don't think... Um, most paleontologists think they went extinct here in North America right. for a period. Right. And were reintroduced by Columbus and then Cortez. But there is... we, we, we went down this road on another previous episode. Yes, we did. But there's been pushback from it. But I think still the majority think they went extinct. But there's still there's some holdouts. So that's what it's okay. not so much. It's not like uh, Sasquatch, for instance. <laughs> which, which I ain't going to go down by the that way, one. Well, just so you know, a friend of mine, he left Ketchikan, and he's now running a Sasquatch adventure tour. Right on, man. <laughs> More power to him. I bet you they keep touring and touring because they're not seeing. I'll bet they're making Look. so much money. Look, it's almost there. Huh? Oh, wait, wait. I, oh, I almost saw it. Yeah. Wait, did you hear that? Did you hear that? No, that's not an elk bugle. That's Sasquatch. Did you see that broken tree limb? That was a Sasquatch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God, Ray. I want to stick to science. I want yeah, to stick to... Science. You know what I loved? When Myrene didn't know the answer, she said she didn't know. Or she said, you know, we're working on that. And that's what's great about science. Science is not exact. I think we've noticed that with all of our scientific um, guests, our scientist friends uh, that have been on. And if they're not really comfortable with an answer they're not going to bs us you know they're going to tell yeah. us what they know yeah i think that's great that's great if you like our show please tell your friends please rate us on itunes and facebook and all that stuff or send and... us an email saying great job and we've been answering yeah. those uh we answer the yeah. emails that we get and uh... got some great great complimentary emails and if there's something you don't like let us know in an email Ray, Ray, you don't like that, do you? Nah. <laughs> nah, I can't handle it. I'm very sensitive. <laughs> well, I think you know right. that. You've made me cry a few times uh, a day. But I, I know I have. I, I, I'm getting a tougher skin, but not really. So. Well, you know what? I'm coming to catch a can real soon, and I can't wait. So I'll see you in yeah, person. I'll make you cry in person, Ray. Be good to hang in person, man. <laughs> We'll have yeah. some sort of adventure. We shall do something. But hey, man, in the meantime, uh, i am uh, got to go down the hill and uh, talk to some museum folks and, uh, you know, cool. go uh, check 
at the Life at the Soho Coho on the cool. creek. I'm going to oh. begin uh, continuing the 20-hour uh, edit of the last episode mm-hmm. that I'm uh, putting all the sound effects. <laughs> I will. I know you do. You can tell. People dig it. So. All right, Ray. All right, signing man. off from Ojai, California, where it's been so windy that uh, the trees have lost all their leaves and it's still spring. Oh, how nice. Are you going to get rain sometime? Nope. We are screwed. Mm, well, well, more about that later. But it's supposed to rain here tonight. We've had a great stretch of weather and then it's going to be sunny again. So I'm down the hill. See you later, dude. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. Paleo, no.